Welcome to the show, everyone. This is going to be a little bit different probably than the rest of the lectures that you've had in the class because this is a podcast. And, well, we know how much students love podcasts. You guys download and listen to everything. So now we're going to have a podcast about ethics. I'd like to introduce my guest this week. It's uh, Dr. Tim Dean, who is a philosopher and actually finished his PhD at UNSW and now is doing some awesome, awesome things. And we'll get into that a little bit more. But Tim, thank you so much. Yeah, look, thanks for having me. Oh, it's an absolute pleasure. Um, you know, when, when they asked me to put this course or this week's course together, I was just like, no, I've, I've got to get you in. There's no way. I, enjoy, I just enjoy chatting with you about this kind of stuff so much that it just kind of made sense. Yeah, yeah. It sounds like a really cool course. Yeah, it, it, it should be good, but I definitely so this week will be the highlight. So. <laughs> well, let's hope so. <laughs> <laughs> For sure. No doubt. No doubt. Uh, Tim, maybe you could just tell us a little bit about some of the research that you kind of started off with, and that could kind of get us on board to, to leading into a little bit more of, of ethics. Yeah, sure. Look, ethics, I mean, goes back to the very roots of philosophy. And... It's been discussed and debated, so, you know, two and a half thousand years. Mm -hmm. And the really frustrating thing is we still don't have any bloody answers, right? <laughs> so we still have this situation where some of the people who spent the, the, the most, the, the, the biggest part of their life right. focusing and, and trying to figure out these questions, um, unpacking all of the different kind of logical structures, all the conceptual right. um, frameworks around ethics and the different ways you can think about it, and what right and wrong is, and how people think, you know, psychologically about it, and yet these people still disagree. Right. And right. so, I mean, that was kind of my entry point: is when you start reading about ethics, you go into it with your own views about what's right and wrong. And I had my views, of course, of course. Yeah, and yeah. you start reading about these alternatives, and the frustrating thing is, you start reading critiques of your own assumptions and beliefs, and you think, oh, right. okay, maybe they're not as good as I thought. And you start reading alternative perspectives, sure. and you're like, okay, that kind of makes some sense too. And you're left kind of floating in this, in this sea of just like uncertainty, right. and you don't know where to go. Now, some people respond to that in different ways. Some people respond by trying to find a particular theory that they can really cling on to. Like some people say, right, Immanuel Kant, he was right. That's now right. what I'm going to push. Or Peter Singer and his sure. utilitarianism, that's what I'm going to push. I never found something that I thought was able to answer all of the kinds of questions. So instead of trying to keep finding one, I got interested in why there is such disagreement and diversity in the first place. Right. And so maybe instead of the disagreement and diversity being a sign of error, a problem, a sign mm -hmm, that mm -hmm. at least some, if not most people, are just wrong, maybe there can be different perspectives that... Um, are equally valid, but not equally valid in every circumstance. And so right. this is where I got very interested in evolutionary biology, looking at yep. how yep. different species carve out different niches in different environments. And you start looking at the history of ethics and you see that different societies have different ethical views based on the kinds of worlds they live in. And that just opened up this entire landscape of this intersection between kind of cultural anthropology, um, moral psychology, Evolutionary biology, right. ecology, so really um, pulling in from all kinds of different economics. Fields at that point. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it, it it led to this picture that shows that ethics can be perceived in these different ways. It can be perceived as um, genuinely like a, a kind of a lands landscape that we navigate to solve the problems of social living. But those problems vary, right. and right creates this huge diversity, which is not always a bad thing. Absolutely. So that's, you know, at the beginning, you kind of mentioned this idea that, you know, 
there are these individuals who latch on a, spe on a specific philosopher, for example, and trying to use that to explain. And that's not, that's not to me, any different than what other scientists do in any other field. Right. They have their single theory that they're, they're really championing, and they spend their life's research exploring that and trying to prove how correct it is. And, you know, and then you'll always have other people with you know, secondary ideas, you know, alternative views which come up that have as much kind of support. Mm. Um, so I've, I'm fascinated by kind of those similarities because um, science is supposed to have all the right answers. I'm doing air quotes there. <laughs> yeah. You know, and philosophy is this idea that we're discussing, you know, the different alternatives. Yeah. But, you know, they're more similar than we probably Look, think of. What they both have in common, you're totally right, right? What they both have in common is you're supposed to follow the evidence wherever right. it leads. So yeah. in science, you follow the empirical evidence where exactly. it leads. In philosophy, the evidence is more kind of just rational. You follow right. the path of reason to wherever sure. it leads. Yep, yep. We all know that we're also human. We all know that we have a theory. We're, we're more naturally inclined to have some kind of problem that we want to explain. We find a solution to it. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. We're like, that does a good enough job of explaining it. We become emotionally attached to that as a solution. Right. Because we also, we're, we're psychologically, most people are pretty uncomfortable with um, uncertainty. Absolutely. Most people are really yeah, yeah. uncomfortable around not knowing. Yeah, so sometimes just to anxiety know, comes from, right? Yeah. yeah. So it actually takes, this is why when you learn science, you have to unlearn this right. natural tendency to cling on to the first theory that seems to answer things mm -hmm. and, and try to snap free and explore these possibilities. And as a philosopher, you have to do the same kind of thing. And so one of the things that both scientists and philosophers have to learn is to be comfortable with not knowing. And yeah, uncertainty. that's and tough, that's isn't it? Really, really hard. Yeah, yeah. I'm I'm pretty yeah. forgiving of people who who are intolerant of uncertainty, right? Sure. Who need to find an answer because we've also got to get on with our lives. Exactly. <laughs> we've got to make yeah, decisions yeah. at yeah. some yep. point. Yep. But it takes a lot of courage to step outside of our comfort zone. Absolutely, and I like that you're 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 mentioning all these kinds of things because the students taking this course come from all kinds of different backgrounds as mm. well, and will have their own way of kind of looking and and at the world and, and making their way through it. Mm. So, you know, asking, we're going to ask all of you out there, right, you know, during this course or this week's course to actually think a little bit outside of your own box yeah. and to open up and hopefully, you know, we'll see kind of, you know, the beauty of diversity um, mm. and having diverse views and perspectives and how that can kind of create this nice ecosystem that you kind of mentioned at the beginning. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see what comes out because, I mean, diversity... I would suggest that diversity is not always bad when it allows us sure. to respond to different and changing kind of circumstances. But not all diversity is good as well. Absolutely. Because you get disagreement yeah, yeah. or you get people sure. who are just wrong or you get yep. people who hold a view that works really well in kind of one environment mm -hmm. but works really badly in another. So like, you know, if you're living in a, a small uh, hunter-gatherer group in, yeah, in yeah. some really uh, harsh environment, you might believe that euthanasia is something that is a really necessary yeah. idea to keep everyone alive so that we're not you know expending resources sure, on someone and more sure. people end up dying but you bring that kind of view into our modern world and it, it's not a good solution so when these disagreements come out it's often really interesting to find out where they're coming from and what's motivating that cultural them and, background really. and you, you yeah. pull them out and so what it can lead to in the best circumstances is good disagreement Right. Not the kind of disagreement yeah. that goes on most of our lives. You know? Especially on the internet. On the internet, dinner table, Twitter. <laughs> yeah, not yeah. that kind of disagreement. Yes, yes. But good disagreement where we can really engage and understand In where real these things discussion. are coming from. Yeah, you know? yeah, yeah, sure. Yeah. Well, I think that leads into uh, quite well into that. And the first kind of question I really wanted to ask you, which, you know, science, 
we're all scientists. We're looking for that one truth. You know, why should ethics really come into play at that? Because, you know, we, we've created an experiment. We're looking at this data, um, I know, hopefully unobjectively, mm, you know, mm. and, and trying to make, trying to understand the world from this data. Why should I even think about ethics? Yeah, and it's a good question because there's one view mm. that is prevalent in the, in the scientific community, which is that science is value neutral. Right. Science is not, science is all about telling us how the world is, not how it should be. Right. And yes. ethics is telling us how the world should be. And that's kind of the, di the distinction between like the descriptive like picture that. and the prescriptive picture yep. or the normative picture. And so some scientists want to say, look, we are just going to go out there and look at the world and report back what we find. We're right. going to come up with theories to explain it. Uh, we're going to find evidence to test those theories. Mm -hmm. You know, we're going to find it to, to, to confirm it or to reject those theories. But ethics is, is a separate endeavor entirely because it's telling us how the world should be. That's for other people to worry about. Right. It's not quite so easy. Yeah, there's no, there's no line that separates those two things, is there really? Well, they, they blend into each other because sure. there are aspects of science where you need to make decisions about um, how you're going to do what you're going to do. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. You're going to need to make decisions about uh, the kind of subjects that you're working with, sure. whether it's people or whether it's animals. Right. You need to decide what questions you're going to ask. Are there questions that are more important than others? Are there right, questions right, that right. we shouldn't be asking? Are there That's avenues? Kind of is there information? Yeah. Like information has uh, an impact on the world. Absolutely. And so if there's information that might emerge from a piece of scientific research that might have a really significant negative impact on the world. Um, should we be doing that? Should we be doing yeah. that? So, I mean, one way to think about ethics is just through the lens of like responsibility, like an, an impact. The greater the impact you have on the world, mm -hmm. the greater responsibility perhaps you ought to take for Absolutely. that impact. Absolutely, yeah, yeah. And this was really abundantly clear. I mean, to take an extreme example of uh, the Manhattan Project. Right. Now, the scientists involved in the Manhattan Project, uh, including people like Oppenheimer and Einstein, uh, they were very aware of the potential impact of what they were doing. Sure. They were really uneasy about it. And there was a lot of ethical debate amongst yep, those scientists yeah, yeah. about that because they, they knew that developing a nuclear bomb um, was going to be a game changer in terms of human history, sure. in terms of our giving us the ability to wipe out our own species yep. relatively easily. And quickly, yeah, absolutely. Is no small feat. Yep. And, but there were other ethical concerns as well because they knew that the Nazis were working on the bomb as well. That's right. Yes. So the question becomes not should we do it, can we afford not to do it? Right. Is it unethical to not do it? Then there's the, the, the way that it's used, the way that it might be used Absolutely. for nuclear yeah. power as yep. well. So yep. there are a lot of ethical concerns around that. Now, that's a, that's a, a kind of a big extreme example, but sure. there are still a lot of impacts that science has today around genetics or agriculture, right. um, around things like nanotechnology, artificial intelligence. Yeah, yeah. These things can have an enormous impact on other people's lives. And so it not only has to be well, arguably done responsibly in terms of the way mm -hmm. the research is conducted, but the scientists may have a significant voice in how that technology is then uh, used right. as well. And I, that, that's an interesting kind of point because it feels like scientists rarely take a role or, or play a role in that kind of what happens after the discovery. Or it, it feels like that anyway as a scientist myself yeah. and, and the, my colleagues that I talk to. You know, we're trying to discover these kinds of things, figure things out, but rarely do we think about 
what's next. That may also be because, you know, our research isn't going to probably change the world in, in, in the way that, you know, developing a nuclear yeah. bomb would. But nonetheless, we rarely kind of consider past the, I want to figure this stuff out. So, so can I ask you a question? Yeah, I suppose sure. this is a question that can go out to um, the, the students as well, is are there ever times when you have decided not to do a particular study or you have had a result mm. where you're like, I'm not entirely comfortable with this result. Or you've read a paper where you're like, I, I, I'm uncomfortable by what they're doing here or what the impacts of these things are. Maybe they shouldn't have done that or maybe I shouldn't be working on this. I, you know, none, not, definitely not my early research. Yeah. Uh, because that was much more just trying to understand how animals interact and make decisions. Uh, and that's interesting enough on its own. And it can be applied to human decision making to some extent. But... You know, it's just trying to understand the information that we use to make those kinds of decisions. More lately, I've been much more interested in understanding how that kind of research could be used to explore how people learn. And that's kind of, we're getting now to that point where ethics needs to play a big role in, yeah. in, in, in research and education, especially when you involve technology, mm -hmm. I think. And I find a lot of research coming out now that revolves around technology and the use of technology uh, and questioning, well, sh A, should we be doing that? Uh, B, if we do that, is that really going to make a more equal society? Is it going to mm. do the opposite, mm -hmm. which seems to be more likely with technology, I think. Yeah. Um, and then, you know, just things that we use, all the apps that we use every day, for example, mm. you know, when we're ordering our, our food and ordering our cheap transport, mm. you know, what is that? Is, what is that doing to those, the, the people that are providing those things to us? Yeah, how much responsibility do we have to take for buying into a system? Like, I mean, Absolutely. arguably, right, we, we are responding to cues. The way our sure. economy works is we're responding to cues. If there are two products that are equally good, one's cheaper, our economy wants us to buy the cheaper one. Exactly. exactly. But then do we have to do a bit of extra work? to look at the, the implications the of that. Absolutely. So is the, per, is the cheaper product because a work is being underpaid or exploited? Yep. And there's a difficult kind of balancing act here because there is. There's, we don't want to be putting so much burden on every individual. And I mean, this, this analogy Absolutely. works for science as well. Sure. So when you do some work and you come up with a result, exactly. how much responsibility do you have to have to think through all of the possible implications of that work? Right. Exactly. Or is this something that as a community can be done together or is this something that you can create a system around mm -hmm. to prevent it so this has happened in artificial intelligence research recently. i was just about to bring that up yeah so uh in fact uh, a, a guy based at unsw toby walsh right. uh, an yep. ai researcher uh, a few years ago released an open letter that was signed by a lot of the ai researchers around the world I remember this yeah, yeah yeah against uh lethal autonomous weapons yep. uh so yep. the idea of um military technology uh, developing weapons that can... I mean, so the one ethical argument that's done in favour of them is, hey, we're saving soldiers' lives. Right. But on the other hand, um, there's a, you could potentially be creating a, a, a terrible problem of drones that have facial recognition exactly. and explode and they, you that can be easily co-opted. Yeah. And there, yeah. there's a really terrifying video on um, YouTube. Uh, right. I can't remember the name, but I'll look it up later. Uh, that, that shows what could happen with this. And so he said, we can't depend upon individual researchers 
Right. To know that the algorithm they're working on, maybe a facial recognition al algorithm, could, could become instrumental in killing thousands of people. Right. So what we need to do is have a charter that right. we all sign up to, that we work at work together with under some guidelines, which takes right. some of the onus off the individuals. Yes. So yeah, these yeah, are yeah. some of the ways that ethics is inherently kind of built into the way the scientific process works. Has yeah, to work. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. You have to think about kinds of those things and the, the, the consequences of, of your actions. And I, I you're. Your AI example is a perfect one. You know, we've got now um, so much research is being done in facial recognition, and we know there's going to be differences in how that works on different people of different ethnicities. Yeah. You know, what effect that has mm. down the so there's a lot of potential problems that could kind of work its way up from that. So that's, that was a great example, mm. absolutely. Mm. All right, so we've we've talked there a little bit about how kind of science and, and ethics kind of really should work together and kind of belong mm. together in a lot of ways. Um, but what are some ways that we can think about how ethics could be integrated or interfaces a little bit more with science? And then maybe there are some examples that you've got that we could talk about where it's gone wrong. Yeah, right. Yeah, yeah well, ethics is already a part of the scientific process and it interjects itself Right. A few different points. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So one of the points uh, is at the very beginning stage of, of the questions that you're asking. Sure. We've already touched on that. So yeah. if you're doing uh, some facial recognition, you can ask, is this the kind of thing that is is ethical? Sure. Uh, could this lead to kind of some bad consequences? I mean, like, or, or maybe a, a, a clearer, a bit more extreme example is a chemical weapons researcher. Right. Yeah. Like, yeah, yeah, should yeah. I be working on, or like a, a virologist, should I be working on... Right something that could very easily be weaponized? Or should I even be working on the weaponization of things? Of something, sure. Now, yeah, yeah. if you go back to that idea that science is just telling facts about the world, there are just simple, dry facts about how to kind of aerosolize particular Absolutely. Um, you know, pathogens. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but is this the kind of question that we want to be asking? They're making available, I guess, to anybody if we're going to be publishing that research. Right? Exactly. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Knowing that it, once it's out in the scientific community, it's, it's kind of out. It's exactly. Out, it's out of yeah, the bottle. Yeah. There are other questions that we can think about in different ways that might be socially problematic or sure. socially divisive. So there's a long history of research into, say, racial or sexual differences. Absolutely. Um, yeah, and yeah. is that the kind of research that is going to be particularly useful? Right. Because when we talk about something like race, it's complicated because race is a philosophically vexed problem. Biologically, right. there's no such thing as human biological populations that are, that are called exactly. races, exactly. but there are ethnicities, and they sure. do have some historical phenotypic correlations, you know, skin color, and all that yep. kind of stuff. Uh, and there is, there are some useful bits of research. So, in um, there's, a, there's a field called ethnopharmacology, right. which yep. finds that different populations of humans metabolize drugs in a different way, or men and women can metabolize drugs in different ways. Absolutely, that kind of research can be very beneficial. But if you then take that research and you say, I'm going to go looking for all of the differences that I can find right. between populations, uh, and I'm maybe going to use some contested philosophy uh, to define race in particular ways, is that a question that is going to be of a net benefit to right. humanity? So it, it can inform the kinds of questions that we ask, you know, human cloning, um, techniques like, do we want to develop prenatal sex selection? Um, do we want Absolutely, to, uh, yeah. you know, do we want to go prospecting for minerals in sacred sites? Right. Now, which the, seems to have been done yes, in areas. Exactly. Absolutely. I mean, this is yeah. stuff that is really happening. I yeah. mean, there are minerals under the ground, and you could just say this it's subjective fact that there are minerals there. Yep. But do we want to know that there are minerals? Do we want to create a moral dilemma sure. by saying, do we want to drill for this and, and, and destroy the sacred site or not? 
So the next place where um, ethics can interject into science is informing the actual experimental process. And so this will, this is why you do um, get ethics clearance on your of course yeah, on, yeah, your, yeah. on your studies. Yeah. You've got to look at the subjects that you're using. Absolutely. Um, so one of the examples is should the subjects in your study be aware that they're in a study? Right. And so we know, for example, that Facebook ran an yes. experiment. Absolutely. Not they did. so long ago, where they deliberately manipulated people's feeds to affect to see if they could affect their mood. Absolutely. And it did. Yes. It did affect their mood. Now, this was never it received ethics approval. This was not run through uh, the, 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 the regular. Business, right? Yeah, they just did yeah. this internally. Now, that was, in effect, a scientific experiment. Absolutely, it is. Yes. Um, is that ethical? That's a question that is an important one to ask. Yeah. Um, we, let, let, let's stick to that one just yeah. for a second. And, you know, to me, as, as a scientist, I would say absolutely not. Right, There's right. no way they should have been doing that because there are so many potential risks yeah. in that situation. Because you have no idea. If you're changing people's moods, for example, and they're coming across, you know, semi-depressed after mm. reading their timeline, who knows what's going to happen to those individuals? Yeah. Especially if you do end up doing that accidentally to somebody who is clinically depressed, sure. right? Yeah, there can um, be huge impl implications for them yeah. and for the people around them. Absolutely. Um, we know that information is incredibly powerful online. I mean, we're, we're looking at so, what's yeah. happening in the United States at the moment exactly. and the role that yep. information and misinformation plays in that. Manipulating people without their knowing. I mean, we can also talk about in 2016 Cambridge Analytica, right. which used <laughs> yes. a lot of the research that, that I was looking at around the same time, looking mm -hmm. at moral psychology, looking at how we make voting decisions, looking right. at our values that are kind of built into the way yep. that we see the world and, and tailoring political messages exactly. to appeal to particular yeah, yeah, yeah. people. In a way, that's a scientific experiment. Can sure we make is. more people vote this way by appealing to these things, you know, based upon data? That's, yep. that's an interesting experiment, but it had a dangerous Huge outcome by manipulating these, the way people are voting. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Is that ethical? Yeah, and I think, once again, I think we know what I'd answer, but the interesting kind of thing is the individuals who ran these studies obviously felt that it was. So we now have this very different perspective of what is and isn't ethical, despite having these kinds of rules. Mm. Uh, well, look, so it's quite possible that they thought that it was ethical. Um, it's also quite possible that they did what most people do most of right. the time, which is find some post hoc rationalization <laughs> to justify what they're doing. And we say do that do that a lot, don't we? This is actually yeah. most, there's, there's some different theories out there, but one uh, by an American psychologist, Jonathan Haidt, argues that most of our moral reasoning is like a lawyer right. sitting there trying to defend <laughs> ourselves in court. And then trying to then, but not just defend ourselves to ourselves, which we do, but defend ourselves to others. Right. But in the, in the process of defending and validating and, and motivated reasoning, finding reasons to kind of say that I'm a good person, I'm doing the right yeah, thing. Yeah, yeah. That also does influence Absolutely. other people. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. So what they could have been doing is saying that this is ethical, but they right. could have also been battling a trade-off where they're like, we know that this information is going to be really lucrative. Um, yes. And so we are going to put ethics on a lower priority than uh -huh. the money. Because one, one of the really annoying things about ethics is it often stops us doing things we want to do. 
Right. right. It, so you, it usually does. That's correct. Yeah. Yes. If someone yeah, makes yeah, you absolutely. angry, you want to punch him in the face. <laughs> Is it ethical to do so? No. So you stay your hand and yeah. you just get frustrated. You, yes. you, 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 see, you see an opportunity yep. to steal from a shop, something that you really want. Now, I mean, that you're going to benefit from that. You want absolutely. that. It's satisfying your desires. Sure. And sure. ethics says you shouldn't do that. And so there, we have a lot of reasons to unconsciously and sometimes consciously find ways to get around those right. ethical things. So and it's an open question the, the uh, as to whether like, right? you know, people like Cambridge Analytica, for example, thought what they were doing was ethical. Yes. Just set ethics aside for a while. <laughs> so one of the things that the students probably don't know about me is over the last little while, I started my own company. You mm. know, startup life, entrepreneur, you know, changes everything. You need more startups, you know, as every university everywhere says all the time. And I think it is a, is a great way to learn. But you know, stepping away from the educational aspect of it and into the creation of the products themselves, often people end up creating things that fill, as we would say, an ecological niche mm. or an economic niche. Um, so, so a question there is when someone is trying to develop their own startup, trying to develop their own kind of product, whatever that, that may be in medicine or in AI and engineering, chemistry, whatever that is, is this ethics should ethics play a much more important role, especially when you know those products will be out in, into market? Yeah, sure. Well, whenever you're doing research uh, on a kind of pure science level, your motivation is ostensibly just to grow our understanding of the world. Right. But then we know that a lot of the research can be commercialized. We know sure, that it can absolutely. actually have benefits, and sometimes it's 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 the primary motivation because you're like. I want to do this research because I want to actually change the world. I want to benefit right. things. Absolutely, yeah, yeah. But then when you commercialize, you're entering a system, a market system, where there are different incentives and different forces, and Absolutely. that can shape the decisions that you make sure. as well. So, uh, I mean, famously in medical science, there's not enough, there's a lot of research going into um, certain types of drugs mm -hmm. that drug companies can commercialize and, and make and a lot of money. Make a lot of money by giving yep. people repeat doses to kind yep. of you know for the rest of their life. There's less research going into some chronic diseases yeah, of in course. developing nations, yep. things like malaria. Uh, there's less research going into things like bacterial uh, or microbial resistance. Um, so this is where the market starts to inform. The, the decisions and the market may not always be acting the most ethically. Sure. So arguably, sure. you could say that we could save many, many more lives by devoting this amount of resources to uh, a malaria uh, drug yep. as opposed to another cancer drug. Right. Um, which might affect a much, much smaller population. Now, you're still saving lives. Yep, yep. So this is where ethics also clashes with just the economy in right. general. Right. And we need to think about, um, you know, is this the kind of thing, it, what are the influences on us? What's shaping our decisions? And ethics is one of the components of that conversation. Sure. Some would say it's the thing that trumps all others. Um, but then right. often people want to take different theories, like a, a consequentialist theory, which says, can I just make the most benefit in the world? And sometimes if I can make a lot of money and donate that money, you know, it, right. it becomes a little complicated, right. but it is one cog that definitely factors in when we're commercializing. Well, you know, that's, that's I think, the birth of the B Corp, the idea that there are these companies that are more ethically responsible. Listen, mm. we're doing these things and developing this stuff, but, you know, it is for the benefit and we give some of our profits back and we also help all these other groups. Mm. But what happens when that thing that that company is actually doing is actually not very good? 
generally speaking, like digging things out of the ground. Yeah, or developing new gambling technologies. Exactly. We know online gambling. Um, there are people working on that. And they're working on the psychology and the algorithms sure. that give intermittent rewards that can keep people addicted Hooked. longer, yep. um, that are extracting. They're very extractive. Right. They're not creating much of a benefit in the world. Mm -hmm. Even for the people who are playing them, they're not necessarily improving their well-being by playing them. Mm -hmm. They're kind of getting Triggering. hooked in. Yeah. yeah. And so these are, these are technologies that are legal. Mm -hmm. uh, mm -hmm. And so, so I suppose this is where also scientists have a difficult decision to make about how they speak in a public environment, how they speak in a policy environment. Right. So this is something that we've seen around climate change, for example, where mm -hmm. a lot of climate change, climate researchers are like, look, our job is to give the facts mm -hmm. and then it's up to the policymakers and the public to, to then decide yeah. what to do. But there are some, an increasing number of climate scientists who are like, well, the facts themselves are... Uh, very unsettling. The facts themselves right. are saying something to me as an expert that the public doesn't seem to understand, that the policymakers seem to be biased against accepting. Right. Yep. Uh, and so a number of uh, climate scientists in recent years have gone into a more of an advocacy role. Yes, they have. That's and when they get into that advocacy yep. role, because they're driven by their ethical principles, they can become criticised. They can be right. criticised by the policy area yep, uh, to say that they're outside of their wheelhouse. Absolutely. So this is an ethical decision that researchers need to make about where, when and how do you step from being an impartial observer, right. not that we ever are perfectly impartial, of course, but yep. a, a, ostensibly the social role of just giving the facts to someone also saying, here is here's what I think we should be doing, moving right. from the descriptive to the normative. Right. And that is a tough role, isn't it? Because most scientists probably aren't well prepared for that kind of thing. Because we don't, A, we don't get that kind of training to interact in a, in a very public kind of sphere yeah. and explaining our results in a easy kind of more digestible kind of way. We're yeah. used to interacting with other so-called experts. Sure. The incentive structures within the scientific community are to produce more papers for your peers right. and just exactly. to communicate with your peers. Look, the good, the good news is there is an increasing awareness of the importance of uh, science communication. Uh, so slowly one of the, it feels sometimes. Yeah, slowly, but it's, yeah. It's, I think it's yeah. growing. I mean, one yeah. of the other jobs that I've done is uh, I've worked as a science journalist. Right, yep. And I've worked with the organization The Conversation, yep. which is a website that um, publishes opinion and anal analysis pieces by academics. Absolutely. So instead of getting a pundit to talk about tax hikes or right. climate change, the conversation would bring in uh, an economist or bring exactly. in a climate yep. researcher. And that is where they are often stepping outside of just the descriptive and getting into the normative, right. but doing it in, in, with help, right. with help yep. from these experienced editors who are able to um, help them craft the message to have the most impact and still be as authentic to the uh, research and the science right. and the expertise that they have. Right. So it does exist. It does. You're absolutely right. And I do agree that, th that things are changing. What I'd like to do, I want to jump back to that one that one idea about gambling that you had. Yeah. Here's this company that's uh, researching, using the research from scientists to, like you mentioned, create something that hits those little dopamine triggers just a little bit more strongly to keep people gambling. And we can, I would, I would guess that most of our listeners right now would probably say, well, that doesn't seem very right, mm. you know. But now this company can go ahead and say, well, listen, we can now take this this funds and you know, we pay some taxes on that, and those taxes pay for the things that you have, like healthcare for mm. everyone, 
Uh, it's paying for roads. It's paying for these kinds of things. And also we take some of our profits and we go ahead and we put it into research for helping people who have different kinds of addictions. Now see, the things that we're actually doing, they're not actually that bad because there's all these benefits that come mm. out of that. Mm. So can we put these things on a scale and say, well, yes, there we go. The good outweighs the bad here. And we know there's bad, but we're weighing them here. And, you know, this is okay, actually. Yeah, that's a really good example. I really like that example because now we can get into some normative ethics. Right. <laughs> okay. So there are a few ways that you can approach a question like that. Right. Um, the first thing that you might want to do is look at the different entry points, the different theories sure. that you could apply to it. Okay. So in ethics, there are, in Western ethics particularly, there are kind of three main pillars. Right. Uh, okay. there's, there's virtue ethics, which comes from Aristotle. It okay. says that uh, what is right is what good people do. And it talks about the virtues. You're honest, uh, right. you're trustworthy, you're courageous, you're magnanimous. Right. It talks about cultivating the right kind of really healthy moral human being. So this is an, we can identify what a good person is. So a, a big part of virtue ethics, and there's disagreement about it, but a big part of, part of virtue ethics is to say, what are the virtues that we should be cultivating? Right. So okay. then a virtue ethicist would say, if the leadership of this business mm -hmm. were really virtuous people, what kinds of decisions would they make? Right. Interesting. And, and okay. so perhaps they would say, you know what? Yes, we are having a positive impact on the world. Um, but we think it's dishonest to be manipulating people, right. and that's you know that's a vice, and right. so they might change their mind. Another approach might okay. be uh, what's called a deontological approach, which talks mm -hmm. about the rules that we should be following. Right. And this okay. comes from philosophers such as Immanuel Kant, mm -hmm. who said that uh, really it doesn't matter if the outcome is bad, if your intention and the rule that you're following is the right rule, then it's good. So he famously said, lying is always wrong. Because right. if I lie, I'm endorsing lying. And if everyone then went to lie, it would be a terrible world. So he's like, we should never lie. So if you took a deontological approach, you could say uh, one of the rules that we should never break is don't intentionally harm people. Right. So if the management of this organization knew that even though they were benefiting all these other people, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. they also were intentionally, harming knowingly harming the small group, the small group mm -hmm. they would say we are breaking the rule. And the third big pillar is consequentialism. Usually right. utilitarianism, Peter Singer is probably the most popular name sure. there. Consequentialism, it just looks at the consequences. They say, all right, you do this thing, it has these negative effects and these positive effects. Is it a net good for the world? Right. Are we helping? And you can look at what good means in terms of happiness or well-being or different metrics. Yep. Yep. But you say, are we, so we're making a small group unhappy, but we're making a big group happy. Mm -hmm. And you could say, well, on a consequentialist view, maybe if you can really, you know, help a lot of people through your tax and your research and all that, okay, maybe that's worth it. Right. But it doesn't quite stop there because a consequentialist could also say as a counterfactual, well, we're spending X amount of dollars researching this and in impacting these people and making this mon much money. Maybe we could be spending the same amount of research right. doing something else. And we could be just benefiting people Everybody only yes. without harming anybody on the other side. Um, so even with consequentialism, you don't just look at what that action is, you look at what all the other actions you could have done. Right. And you try to figure out the, the best kind of approach to doing that. There's a lot of nuance within mm -hmm. all of those theories. Of there are other theories from the Eastern tradition, such as uh, Confucianism, which talks more about loyalty and the social structures. Um, but there are these different frameworks that you can apply 
to try to answer a question like that. And there's disagreement about which framework to apply, but at least we have some you can draw on and right. you can at least get a feel of the territory and have some language to debate that with other people who might disagree with you. Right. That's what ethics can help us with. That's in, that. To me, what you've kind of described there allows us to quite nicely classify what, what's going on. But of course, it's never really that simple, is it? Because <laughs> really, yeah. the, the CEO of this company that may be doing these things may be following a consequentialist kind of perspective, and it says we're doing a net good at the end of the day, and that's fine. Um, but the reality is that CEO isn't necessarily driven by some of the actions, of course. They are driven by ensuring that their shareholders you know, are happy. So it's even a smaller group of individuals mm. that kind of have to be kept happy. Um, and that well, there's a, there's a fascinating uh, shift going on in the business community around the world at the moment to move away from shareholder capitalism, which is what you're describing there. Mm -hmm. To mm -hmm. say the idea, and Milton Friedman said this, the economist, he said the business of business is just business, right? right. If you're trying to make a profit, then you're doing the right thing. If you're right. hampering your ability to make a profit, because of your own individual ethical right. concerns, you're and not doing the right thing. You're in irresponsible leadership. But that's capitalism, right? And what that yeah. means, though, yeah. is that a small number of shareholders can be motivating uh, a business to have a very dramatic impact on a lot of other people. Right. Uh, right. Say it's you know working in areas yep. of fossil fuels or tobacco or things that we know have these big negative externalities, yep. big negative externalities. So there's a shift in the U.S. Business Roundtable, which represents um, hundreds of very, very large businesses in the U.S., came out a couple of years ago, uh, a bit over a year ago, and said we should move to what's called stakeholder capitalism. So instead of only right. making the decisions based upon the interests of shareholders, we a should few. think about the supply chain, the right. customers, our employees. Yep. Yep. We need to factor the environment, all of the stakeholders, the, the, the political infrastructure, all of the things that we could impact. That needs to be fed into our decision-making process. Yep. And that's an ethical move. Right. That's a it move is. where they're saying, instead of only following a particular calculus, and shareholder capitalism is a simple calculus. It's one yeah, that they sure like is. to follow. Absolutely. We know, you look at the numbers, are we doing yep. well or poorly? If the profit exactly. is up, we're doing well. Just, yeah, exactly. And shareholder, stakeholders are a lot harder because you can say, look, the numbers are up, but we've had all these negative impacts that are hard right. to measure. That equation is much bigger. It's much bigger, yeah. but... There's an increasing awareness that if we continue on the business as usual mm -hmm. shareholder approach, we are ignoring huge ethical concerns absolutely. that could end up harming um, everyone, including future generations. Yeah, absolutely. Um, that's really interesting that the business community is trying to think about that because I think about that all the time, right? All the time, um, especially as a you know a small business owner as well. Yeah. You know, great. I'm glad we had a little bit of a chance to actually talk about a real kind of ethical. Kind of conundrum and see you know the benefits and the costs and uh, yeah, yeah so that, that's fantastic hopefully by now I, uh, our listeners are kind of thinking yeah no this is this is good stuff this is we should be incorporating more of ethics into science business economics all these kinds of things because you know they'll make us potentially better people in a better society so on and so forth so can you can you imagine a world where we can step even further into into blending ethics into everything more harmoniously to kind of kind of create something better for everyone. Well, look, I mean, I, I think that ethics is is integral to just about all the decisions that we make. Um, the challenge that we face today is 
in a way, it was easier in the past. Right. Because in the past, we didn't have to think about which ethical theory to apply. Right. We were just given one. We sure, were, we, sure. we grew up in a particular yeah, yeah, culture, a particular community, a particular religion, and it was just imposed on us. Here's what you believe. Here's how you decide what's sure. right and wrong. And the the weight was lifted off our shoulders, but it also meant that if that particular ethical perspective had any flaws, and it often privileged the particular community of course it does, that yeah. it was it was coming from, um, then those those flaws were unexamined. They were un, you know unchallenged. Uh, and we've seen an enormous change in this process over the last, particularly over the last century or so, mm -hmm. where we are now given more freedom to look around and decide what kinds of values are important to us, mm -hmm. what mm -hmm. kinds of theories we want to apply. It does put a lot more weight on our shoulders. Yeah, it makes it tough to decide and, and, and which path to take, right? It makes it tough. It creates more diversity and disagreement. Right. Um, it means that we have more debates with yep. people. It means it's harder to resolve these issues. Sure. But it's still essential for us to do that. And I think that one of the challenges is us is for us to acknowledge that our enculturation um, is a huge influence on us. Mm -hmm. But to the, one of the things with enculturation is that everything becomes invisible to us. Sure. We just we think some things are right and wrong, and mm -hmm. it's just obvious to us. Exactly. It's not obvious to everybody, and it can, it can cause more friction. When we're like, can't you see? Of course. You disagreeable person. Can't you see that this is obviously wrong? And, you sound like the internet now. Yeah. <laughs> well, this is, this is how the, the internet has all the incentive structures to encourage conflict of a negative, of an ugly does, kind. Yeah. Not the kind that says, talk to me. Explain. Where yes. are you coming from? Yeah. What is your experience? What are the, let's, let's look at what your values are. Why sure. do you say that? Getting those kinds of conversations is hard. But it is really important to do. And I would expect that over time we're going to see a faster kind of churning of ethical views we think about how much how many things we took for granted 20 30 40 years ago sure. the kinds of jokes people would make around over barbecues yeah, um, yeah that are just not appropriate today the kinds Absolutely. of behavior look at things like me too how that's changed sure. the way uh, people are interacting with each other in a workplace or mm -hmm. with friends mm -hmm. or partners these kinds of things are changing the ethical landscape quite quickly. It adds more burden on us to, to challenge our own views and, and, and understand that there are you know, different perspectives out Absolutely. there that we might yeah, yeah. need to update. It's really often quite hard to give away the ethical views that we grew sure. up with. Absolutely. But we, we're drenched in ethics, right? I think that the, I guess what I would try to say is it's sometimes invisible to us because we think we're so confident in our the views that we were enculturated in, it, it seems transparent. We just see the world in, that, in, in, in that this very particular light. Kind of way, yeah. um, but so we're already acting ethically. Every time we make a decision, every time we deal with a sure. dilemma, every time we wonder, should I tell this person? Should I lie to them or not? Yep. Every time we have to make these tough decisions about, should I be helping this person or helping that person? Or right. should I regift this present? Whatever it is, yes. right? Yep. We are yeah, already yeah. making ethical decisions every day of our lives. The question is, are we doing it well? And that's oh, where right. engaging with a little bit of philosophy uh, and learning a little bit of, right. and, and that's not necessarily saying you've got to become an expert or you've got to just only argue rationally. It can just be a, a bit more self-reflection and a bit more willingness to open and engage and listen and, and talk to other people. Right. Just that yep. can profoundly change our experience engaging with ethics in our profession, sure. in our private lives, in, in the social sphere, everywhere.
you know, then that, that kind of leads in naturally to my next question is if there are, you know, listeners out there that kind of want to, you know, move into philosophy and ethics a little bit more, is there something where they could kind of dive into and read up a little bit that may not feel too heavy for them? Sure. I mean, one of the challenges with philosophy is a lot of the books are heavy. I find yeah, them heavy. Yeah. Because you've got to uh, think quite hard. They're you know? tough. Exactly. Reading yeah. Immanuel Kant is, <laughs> is not easy. I'm sure. He has some very long sentences. Um, <laughs> but there are some good entry points. There are a lot of really good uh, introductory books to philosophy. Um, A.C. Grayling, a British philosopher, okay. has okay. a lot of really good introductions. One of my favorite books, which is a little out of date now, but I still love it, is Bertrand Russell's History of Western Philosophy. Interesting. Yep, yep. He starts with the ancient Greeks. Now, it's only the Western tradition, um, but he starts with the ancient Greeks and he gives each major philosopher maybe 5 to 10, 15 pages. Oh, that's great. Gives them a bit of historical yep. context. You see how the philosopher who came after them was influenced by the one who right. came before and how you see this chain of thought and how it, all the different social influences and, and you get up to the early 20th century. Right. Um, I find it really useful because you can be flicking through that. You get exposed to all these different ideas. You say, hey, I like this. I like Epicurus. I want to know right. more about that. You know, I like David Hume. I want to read a bit more about that. It could be a bit of a springboard. That's perfect. I would qualify that it is out of date and it's, it's contested like a lot of philosophy. So if you That's read it, don't necessarily take Russell's view as yeah, being yeah. the only view. And if you do go want to deep in... Go with an open mind, right? Yeah, go with an open mind, but yeah. critical. Read yeah, everything yeah. critically. Everything yeah, exactly, we've, got, exactly. we've got to watch everything critically. We've got to watch Friends critically. Yeah. Everything's got to be engaged with critically. If I don't know if anyone it, should watch Friends anymore, but anyway, that's another Well, that's if you do, thing. you can do it critically. Yeah, and you, you, can, could, you don't yeah. just let it wash over you. you know? Absolutely. And say, Definitely it, with it, that it is what it is. Yes. So it's a really good springboard. The other really good resource online is the Stanford Encyclopedia of Philosophy. Okay. There are these essays. They're reasonably long, maybe 10,000, 20,000 word essays okay. on okay. a thousand different subjects. If you want to delve in a little bit deeper to a particular theory without reading necessarily the original source material, right. it's a good stepping stone a bit deeper. And then again, you can then start reading. Don't I don't recommend people go straight to Descartes, straight yeah. to, I mean, well, Plato's Those dialogues. Those are tough reads, aren't they? Plato's dialogues are great. They're right. fun. They're really fun, but if you go straight into Descartes, you go straight into Kant or something, or Nietzsche, it's difficult. Yeah, I could imagine. So start reading the secondary stuff first. That's great. In terms of science, there's a very good um, introduction called Ethics and Science, and Introduction, right. uh, published by Cambridge University Press. That's a great one for scientists because cool. it gives a good overview of really where these two things connect. Right. Okay, excellent. I think those are great, but you know, I think you, you might have missed one. Yeah. I believe you are writing something pretty soon so you should you, might, you know you might oh, as well yes, give course. a plug might by, give a by plug. my book um my my as yet untitled book which yeah. is a, a source of great frustration for me i've got like four different titles and i haven't chosen one yet it, excellent coming out later this year what i'm looking at is um the role that evolution plays in shaping the way we think about right, right and wrong Very and cool. how those things were maybe really useful back in the day Right. But they're not so useful now. So, like, outrage helped us to maintain order in small-scale sure. societies. But now... Now, it it's just... Every other sentence on the internet. ...creates flame wars on Twitter, yes. right? Is that really yes. net benefit for humanity? Right, right. So, I'm just looking at a whole, like, racism, sexism, outrage, um, politics, religion, a bunch Very of different cool. things through this lens. Well, there you go. We'll, we'll have that link to that book at, at the bottom of this one. When it finally comes <laughs> out. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Um, one thing, before we get into... My last question, you know, you brought up something that I thought quite interesting is, is this idea that, um, you know, our culture forms our ethical kind of perspectives and the, the way we view the world. 
Um, and because cultures kind of change over time, that's going to change as well to some extent. And here I am, I feel like I'm an individual who you know, is much more aware of political correctness. You know, I'm middle-aged pretty mm. much, even though you know, hopefully everyone's going, no, he can't be. He doesn't look it. I am, I am. Same. Yeah, exactly, exactly. But you know, I've got kids who see the world, you know, who are obviously influenced by my ethics, but yet I see the way they perceive the world as well, which is quite interesting. And really quickly, I want to say, we watched, um, when we were away, we watched on holiday uh, the Bruce Lee movie. Oh, yeah. Yeah, it's about the history of his life now, and I've right. forgotten the, the name of it right yeah. now. But it just goes through all of some of the the accomplishments that he's done, but all the difficulties he had yeah. while doing that, even though he was an American, being born in America. And my kids would watch you know, what was happening in the 1960s, and they were horrified. Yeah. How could they possibly say that? to him those words and all those things that they're doing they're like that's that's what that time was like and that's mm. how people viewed but you know i didn't end it there and said actually that's kind of how it is for some people still mm. um so even though you know ethics is changing culturally and you know there's still a lot a lot to go but my question i guess is do you feel with each generation we have a stronger kind of ethical fiber in society or do you think that mm. that may not actually be happening look it's an interesting way to put it um i don't know whether i would say there's a stronger ethical fiber because i think every generation has its strong ethical fiber just right. around a different set of ethics sure and right. one of the things that's really changed um i mean the 60s was a was a huge turning point uh when you look at western society ethically absolutely Pri prior to that people tended to live within fairly homogenous communities and they had their particular ethic. Right. Um, they had their particular view. Might have been Protestant or Catholic in the states. You yep. know, if you were white uh, or Jewish, or you had a particular kind of community that you of lived course. most of your life in. You yep. didn't have a lot of interaction with outsiders. Um, multiculturalism hadn't really taken sure. effect. Absolutely. Yep. And so people were very, very inverted commas ethical but they were much more inward focused focus right. on the community. Right. What's changed is a greater awareness of diversity and a greater awareness that our particular community doesn't necessarily have a moral privilege right. compared to another. And this is changing. This is changing because one of the challenges that we face is that a lot of the ways that we see the world ethically kind of get entrenched during our childhood and kind of get a pretty galvanized by the time we're about 20. Right. Interesting. Maybe 25. 20. Really? Okay. So what you believe when you're 20 to 25, you're pretty much going to carry with you for the rest of your life. Right. And the pace of change where each generation is living in a different environment, they're interacting with a, a lot, much greater diverse range right. of people and ethnicities and cultures in their schools, in their friendships. Um, their parents are going to have been enculturated in a different right, way. of course, of and course. And now yep. your kids' kids are probably going to have a different world. Sure. And there's going to be continual pressure right. intergenerationally to, to criticize different generations yeah. for moving too fast or too slow. And I'm sure all of our listeners have probably experienced that from it's, their parents it's just as a part, well. It's a part of the, the process. This is another yeah. thing that we have to... So one of the things that I... Just a last point on this is I, I often urge patience and yeah, that's tough tolerance. Often. So very I've, difficult um, things you're asking people to do there. It is. It's yeah. not natural, right? Yeah, yeah, we don't want to. We, we're not. We're not 
evolved to be patient yes. with people who disagree with us. Yes. Our, the cultures that we, we lived in for tens and hundreds of thousands of years, um, it wasn't up to us to decide, oh, hang on, I have a different view here. Absolutely. We just conformed. Right. And so when we see disagreement, we, it's not just that we disagree with the content. We are seeing non-conformity, which we are rejecting. And we, right. we want to we bang people into, into the line. Right. Yeah, yeah, sure. Um, and so, like, I've had conversations with people who were opposed to same-sex marriage. Right. And what they were saying was, look, I was raised a particular way. I was taught a particular thing. It's not... They're saying, I'm not... I don't see myself as being immoral. Right. I'm actually being more moral because right. this is what I genuinely believe and no one will, will listen to me. But when you have a conversation and you, you open up, understand where these things are coming from and give people different perspectives and change can begin. It can take right. a long time, but it can begin. And a lot of people who opposed same-sex marriage maybe 10 or 20 years ago have changed their views. Right. And it's not necessarily through rational argumentation. One of the phenomena, this comes from uh, Robert Putnam, a sociologist in America. He calls it right. the, okay. the, um, the Auntie Sue effect or something like right. that. Right, yes, like yep, yep. When, when gay people started coming out and being public about it, people started to realise, oh, you know, a lot of people I know are gay. Yeah. It's no big deal. Yeah, yeah, it's exactly, not like It's exactly. not like they're completely different to us. It they're doesn't just, affect me at all. Yeah, it's just one yeah. aspect of, of a much more complex identity that they have. Uh, absolutely. And so you start to rebrand and reconceptualise what homosexuality means. Right. And so older people who have now realised that many of their friends and colleagues and even family members right. have always been gay, that's yep. what changes their mind. But if you start lambasting them and, and applying outrage to right. them and calling them bad people, social defenses come up exactly. and they yeah, prevent yeah. people yep. from engaging. Now, this is a really complex problem. Of course it is. And yeah, this, yeah, yeah. we could talk for hours about how to overcome diversity, but this is something that we're going to see more and more intergenera- intergenerationally yeah, very as likely. different environments change the way yep. that young people are enculturated. Absolutely. I think to that end, there is... Uh, a, a nice quote that I saw on the internet one time, which is, tradition is just peer pressure from the dead. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> which which I, yeah, I yeah. like quite a lot. And, and, Absolutely. And, and I think it speaks to what you're saying there quite yeah. a bit is just all the, the way we, that's the way we used to do it. Yeah. That just seems like it's peer pressure from people yeah. before us. Yeah. And that's the only reason that we're still behaving in that kind Look, of a way. It's a really good point. And, and what I would just stress is that for tens or hundreds of thousands of years, um, that's the way we were. And so yeah, our minds yeah, exactly. are socially evolved to be very responsive to tradition. Right. Yep. And it was often a good idea because yeah, the exactly. environment didn't change. We had a bunch of rules. They were working. Yeah. Don't rock the boat. Exactly. But the world today is yeah. changing so quickly. We right. can't. Tradition is less useful to us than Absolutely. it used to be. Absolutely. But there's yeah. a tension, right? People, yeah, sure is. Some people want to hold on a bit more. We call them conservatives. Right. Some people want to change things a bit more. We call them liberals or progressives. Right. And right. we have this forever tension between stability and change god we got to be careful because we get down the road of politics i don't think this podcast is ever gonna <laughs> yeah yeah we might need a 10-part series or something <laughs> but i you know i think this idea of how things will change in the future rolls nicely into a kind of what we're going to ask the students to do in, the, in a little bit yeah because tim and i work together on a game uh called ethos 2514 uh, and this is where you're sent 500 years in the future and you're creating a new colony of humans on another planet very, very far away. And you, as the commander, you have to make a lot of decisions. And decisions are never easy, mm. especially when you have a diverse group of people that you're kind of trying to ensure survive. So we're going to ask you to play that game. But 
you know, what I want to ask Tim to give while you guys are downloading that app on Google Play and the App Store, uh, all free, so you're all fine, is, you know, I, I got to you about two years ago, I guess it feels like now at this point, and I asked you, oh, Tim, you want to help me create this game? And I was coming from a very scientific and very game developmental kind of perspective, and it was awesome to actually chat with you about how do we incorporate a little bit more ethics and all these different ethical conundrums mm. into the game so you know players can have a little bit of fun thinking through some of these decisions do you remember do you remember doing this yeah. I, it was it was, I, 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 it was so amazing when you came to me and said this is this is the project right let's make a game let's bring some ethics into that uh I mean, a lot of the work that I do is kind of more abstract and writing yeah, and reading sure. and talking yeah, to people. Yeah. But this idea of creating scenarios that that are imbued with this ethics without it being really in your face was right. such a fascinating project to work on. No, I'm glad you enjoyed so it. Interesting. I had a lot of fun. Yeah, it was a ton of so fun. interesting. Each of you out there will get the chance to play that. And I'm really looking forward uh, to seeing what you all think of, of the world that, that Tim and I and, and the developers kind of created. Mm. So we won't get too far into it because we want to leave that as something, you know, each of you to experience on your own. Yeah. But definitely looking forward to see what you all think from a more of a philosophical kind of perspective rather than the biological and game development. Is there, are there some things about the game that we've kind of created that you are kind of really happy about and want the students to kind of understand a bit more? Yeah, without giving too much away. Yeah, um, yeah of course. Yeah, uh, look, it was a really interesting challenge. What I what I tried to do with on the ethical side, on the philosophical side, is make sure all the characters, all the personalities in the game, have right. a particular kind of um, ethical perspective, sure. ethical stance that seems natural, that seems yep, yep. plausible. Absolutely. And that's not just holding a particular ethical viewpoint. And I included a few, like we've talked about consequentialism, deontology. A right. libertarian, some hedonism, which means Absolutely. you don't believe in it. happiness is the yep. most important thing, yep. as yep. well as some Eastern philosophy through Confucianism. Um, but also uh, personality types, because one of the interesting things that's right. come out of moral psychology recently is that what we believe ethically is not just a purely rational thing. Mm -hmm. We're informed by our emotions and our cognitive styles sure, and the sure. way we think. So to give the characters these personalities that are plausible and to use them to interact with each other to create dilemmas that are kind of plausible um, and to create dilemmas that, that will encourage the player to think them through and see which right. side they lean and try to tease out some of these tensions. Because yep, yep. the best dilemmas are not when there's two bad things on offer. Of course. It's when there are two good things on offer. It's like, I re this is the right thing and this is the right thing. Right. I have two moral theories that are conflicting at the moment. And to see how those things interact, and I'm going to be so fascinated to see what results come out of it. I'm I'm really curious as well to see what some of the decisions the students make yeah. as they're playing through. It's going to be a lot of fun. And the, I, what I really like about what we've created here as well is the fact that you know everything's anonymous, but we'll be able to see how folks are responding to things and maybe tie it into different personality traits mm. and things. And so we're all actually going to be doing a little bit of science to help us understand ourselves a little bit better and understand each other a little bit better, which I think, you know, tying it back to the beginning, that's kind of what philosophy is all really yeah. about. You yeah. Know? So yeah. It's just, it's trying to make the world a better place by thinking about it a little bit more. Oh, that's a <laughs> tough thing to do. It is tough. Yeah. It's not a battle. Yeah. Well, Tim, this was an absolute pleasure. Um, you know, we'll share all our results with you yeah, because great. it's going to be, yeah, it's going to be a lot of fun. So thank you once again for coming on and Everyone and all our listeners, I hope you really enjoyed this uh, this lecture. Something a little bit different. 
but uh, you know, let us know and, and because we can do a few more of these kinds of things if it's something that you enjoy. So hopefully you read up a little bit and we'll chat with you all soon. Thank you.